This week on The Futurists, Monica Anderson. In the world at the large, I mean, is that science is going to lose its prime position as being the way we tackle the most complicated problems. Hello and welcome back to yet another edition of The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with my co-host, Brett King. Hi, Brett. Hey, 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 hey. Welcome back from your travels. It's good to see you again. You say it's like every week we start with that, right? Welcome yeah, it's back. It's true, you're a globetrotter. I love it. I love hearing about it. So this time you were in Europe. I was. London and Paris was a great trip. Um, had uh, Miss Metaverse with me, Katie. Oh, nice. So uh, it was, we were able to hang out in Paris. It was was wonderful. Can't beat that. Paris in the spring, my favorite. So while you were traveling, the world of AI continues to evolve and explode and expand. And there's new headlines and new stories and new papers every single day. It seems like the topic we can't avoid. Uh, everybody we've interviewed on this show brings it up. Even um, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed uh, an expert on, on the future of law. Right. And of course, the conversation veered into AI because it's an unavoidable topic. You can't days. talk about the future without addressing how AI is going to change it, for sure. So one of the people who's been most refreshing in my news feed is an AI researcher who calls herself an experimental epistemologist. And she comes to us by way of Sweden. Her name is Monica Anderson. And I, I wanted to invite her on the show for quite some time. And it felt like this was the perfect moment. So, Brett, give a big welcome to Monica Anderson. Hey, Monica. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you here, Monica. Tell me something. Um, this term, a, an experimental epistemologist, is going to throw people. It certainly threw me. Can you tell me what you mean by that term? Well, if you're going to work in artificial intelligence today, when everything is focused on these large language models and neural networks and deep learning and the stuff that's been going on since 2012, uh, you have to realize that that basically we are talking about something that hasn't happened before, something we haven't dealt with before. And in order to understand that fully, we have to go belong, below science. Science, we talk about the uh, first principles of science as being very important to not be misled by various other factors. But in AI, that's not enough. You have to go to the zeroth level. And the zeroth level of science would be the level of epistemology because science is built on top of epistemology. So and for the folks who are listening, epistemology. What is epistemology? epistemology. Yeah, yeah. It, it refers to our understanding of knowledge or how the how the mind perceives reality. Correct. And that's the key issue is that we are trying to create our own minds and they have to have a reality and the perception of reality that's useful. And we have to know how to do that. And if I got you right, you mentioned the zeroth level. So uh, we hear people like Elon Musk frequently talks about first principles, right? This is considered a, a sound way to do engineering and problem solving. You start with right. first principles and expand from there. But you're saying there's a level below first principles, and that's the level, the zero level. Yes. And in order to understand why that's necessary, we have to understand the limits of science. And I have uh, discussed that at length in several videos. But I can give a flavor of that by a, a simple uh, Example, suppose you're back in grammar school and uh, uh, the teacher gives us a story problem. She says, Holly is four years old. She has three boxes of chocolates and there are six boxes of chocolates in each box. How many chocolates does Holly have? And somebody will pipe up and say 18. And I typically say in my talk, I said, that's almost right. It's actually 18 chocolates. And if you're an epistemologist, you understand why you have to add those chocolates to the answer. Um, now, those are easy questions. I mean, the answer 18 chocolates is what basically what science would give us given this example. The question that science cannot but What is chocolate? No, simpler <laughs> than that. Suppose you're trying to solve this problem and you come up with 18. How did you know you had to multiply? How did you know that the age, uh, that Holly's age four didn't factor in? How do you know that you had to multiply? Oh, so knowing what's important or what's relevant is a key to the understanding is this is the exactly. domain that you're in. And so, so, so now help me relate that to AI because one of the things you've described in your writing is the reductive approach is that the scientist or the person who's doing the inventing decides what's important and they discard all the rest. 
Right. But you're suggesting now that the approach with AI is to give it everything and let the AI determine what's important. Exactly right. That is exactly how it works. So we are basically, what we're doing is we're delegating the understanding of the problem itself. We're delegating the understanding of the problem domain, the problem at hand, et cetera, to the AI. To the point where the researchers themselves don't have to understand the problem. And this is obviously what, what we want AI to do. We want AI to think for us so that we don't have to. That's the whole point of having an artificial intelligence. And this is the, the domain called uh, deep deep learning, right? That's what we're referring to. It's, it's this not is all AI. This is everything that basically provides the service that we expect uh, artificial intelligence to do. The, the, my technical definition of artificial intelligence is any system that's capable of autonomous epistemic reduction, a system that can on its own determine what matters and learn that and not learn all the noise, for instance. But in your writing, you say that there's a, a kind of a fundamental conflict in the way we go about science today that leads to kind of cognitive dissonance. In fact, you, you argue that the whole field of science is conflicted this way, that it has a fundamental cognitive dissonance. And that's between this reductive approach and a holistic approach. Um, the holistic approach being, you know, here is the whole mess. Here's the whole complex scenario. Hey, AI, you go figure it out. And exactly. you're you're saying that 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 approach is kind of radical, right? The way scientists typically would approach a problem like that is they'd break it down into constituent parts and then solve each piece, and hopefully before, the, piece, the parts fit before together. Before they get breaking it down, they have to understand the problem. There's no way around it. You have before you can reason about anything, before you can break it down in a reductionist fashion, you have to understand this. So the understanding is the more fundamental principle, hmm. and the and, understanding, it turns out can't be done scientifically. You mean the understanding of human thinking, uh, the thought process? Understanding of any problem domain. So for, for AI, we talk a lot about, um, you know, guide rails, you know, in terms of things like ethical considerations and so forth. And we know that the quality of the data models that go into um, the LLMs and so forth are critical for establishing these types of guide rails. Is that part of the solution to the problem or is LLM effectively, you know, not able to grasp some of these fundamentals or there's no structure for that, that for sort of fundamental um, epistemological understanding? Uh, this is a, um, this is a question that has more relevance in the short term uh, than in the long term. Uh, we don't know what it's going to look like even five years from now. But uh, we can definitely say that, okay, so in my post about AI alignment is trivial, I basically try to explain that uh, skills and behaviors and wants and needs and all of these things are learnable. We have already seen ChatGPT 3.5 knows English at the level of a college-educated uh, person and has very little info, uh, knowledge about arithmetic, can't even do simple arithmetic. And in humans, that kind of a discrepancy is very unusual. So people who look at the earliest LLMs and their behaviors, they are basically saying that uh, this is very strange. This is this got to be wrong. But if we accept that these skills, such as arithmetic and English, are very separable, we can look at what else the system has in the way of skills. And we, we notice that all behaviors are just skills. You can learn to snowboard. You can learn Finnish language. There's all kinds of stuff that we can learn or not. And then we look at behavior as such, and we understand that Behaviors such as greed and power hungriness and, and deceit and, and so on, all these behaviors, they are learned. And we learn them as humans. We learn them partly through our evolutionary history because we have a limbic system. We have a lizard brain. And the lizard brains and limbic systems, those are what keep us competing. That's also what keeps us power hungry. Those are what keeps us trying to climb up and, and be on top. And this we don't have to put in our AIs. And right, right. So we can have, uh, you know, because the AIs can be for the common good rather than individual um, individual yeah. success. It's more about evolutionary theory, Brett. The, the idea is that AIs didn't evolve uh, the way humans right. evolved over millennia. Right, right. 
AR, so, not you know, product of evolution, the product of intelligent design, intelligent design in my brain and others, in, in the mind of scientists. So the intelligent designer can choose not to include behaviors, oh. uh, you know, c competitive behaviors and dominating behaviors Absolutely. and so forth. So you're yes, saying that those true. those arose through a Darwinian uh, process of natural selection in humans. Yep. And so when we worry about things like an AI taking over the world or AI is killing us, you hear people speculate about this all the time. It's kind of a common science fiction scenario. But yep. in your view, that's unlikely to happen unless we intentionally design that behavior or that motivation into the AI. Exactly. That is basically it's it's ethnocentric. It's an anthropocentric view to yeah. believe that that our AIs would be uh, like ourselves. Now there are many ways in which AIs are like we are because it's in inherent in uh, how understanding works uh, and so on. But there's also ways in which we can make them completely different because we have complete control over what behaviors we want. Specifically, I should like to mention that. Um, the world is a dirty place, especially if you feed it internet as the main corpus yeah. from it's gonna it's gonna see a lot of the nasty behaviors and greed and other stuff on the web and bias and discrimination and all of that stuff. But we can't take that out of the corpus. It has to be there because if we take it out, then we're learning the system on a Pollyanna model of the world. And that's not going to work when it actually gets down to try to solve some real problems. The problems on a grid are going to be in the dirty world. So we have to give it a complete view of the world, everything, holistic, etc. We have to give it everything we have. And then after the fact, we have to give it behaviors in a separate pass. And that's already happening. OpenAI is doing the behavior in a, re a reinforcement learning with human feedback. Mm -hmm. process um, and other things like that, including supervised learning based on previous RLHF sessions. And um, that is the way you get behaviors in there. And we have full freedom to put in politeness and helpfulness and other things and avoid greed and power hungriness and, and take over the world kind of things. So it's these are the guardrails that Brett was just referring to a minute ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it, it, it always strikes me when we have this sort of conversation about the theoretical um, uh, formation of consciousness or intelligence at an AI level, we always put human nature and human values upon AI. But we already have AI, you know, in some areas, um, you know, divergent from human logic, you know, so I, I've always felt that um, you know, when we talk about, for example, AI is taking over the world and, and uh, you know, enslaving mankind, that is a very human type of value system, right? Rather <laughs> yeah, than, we're saying a lot about ourselves yeah. when we talk about that. Right. Like but it, we're revealing no, not... our worst motivations. <laughs> right. You know, but this is a, a different type of intelligence and there's no guarantee that it's going to follow that that. Um, path, especially if we can come up with the gui right guide rails. So, um, you know, I guess philosophically, where do you sit on that, Monica? Well, for better or for worse, they are going to be more human-like than we're used to, and they're going to be less human-like than we expect or at least uh, hope right. for. Um, the, the, the places where they're going to be human-like is that they're going to make human-like mistakes. Um, we remember expert systems from the 90s and 80s, and they were very brittle. They were basically, they, you hard-coded a competence in some domain, such as approving house loans or something like that. But if you start talking football with them, they will completely fall flat on their face. And the mistakes that these AI systems, the expert systems made were expensive, spectacular, and, and hard to fix. And uh, today we have basically machines that make uh, many mistakes, but they're human-like mistakes. They're almost correct. If we can often immediately correct them if we find them and so on and achieve the fix. So this is, uh, we're, we're getting closer. The more we appreciate the human uh, part of AI, the more we have to tolerate the human uh, tendency to I mean there, there's pros and cons of making AIs human like right I mean um you know like people are talking about these hallucinations like we can't trust AI because they they hallucinate or they lie and it's like well humans do that all the time you know all you have to do is look at the CNN town hall the other day right um but um so you know that's not necessarily uh, something that should preclude AI from from existing because it's human like but we can 
can eliminate some of those things. We can try to make, uh, you know, as you say, with those guide rails, make AI more consistent, um, you know, as as a class. But again, um, this co- actually, comes back. That's actually back happening to right now. The right? Role of you know, role of what we want AI to play in society to some extent. Oh, that's like five questions, and I have to. No, I, I know, I know. <laughs> I was just uh, riffing. So the the uh, the places where we cannot avoid them uh, being very similar to us to our frustration is basically exactly in the level uh, or cost but or or explained by epistemology. Um, the the most important things that I have basically been talking about for the, since two thousand six in my outreach has been basically that. Um, we can look at, like, if you will, three laws of, of uh, AI epistemology. And the first one says that omniscience is unavailable. You can't be aware of what's happening in the world. Uh, you don't know what, if you want to predict Apple stock price a week from now, you don't know what happens in their boardroom or in Taiwan or whatever. And uh, the second one is that all corpora are incomplete. No matter what you try to teach your artificial intelligence, you're not going to have a complete corpus. You're going to not complete all, uh, cover all the corner cases, etc. So the system will be ignorant in everything that you didn't tell it. And in humans, we don't notice that because we have an enormous corpus going back to birth. Everything we see and everything we heard since birth is part of our corpus. And AIs have limited corpora. We think they're gigantic, but they're puny compared to human. And the big reason that they lie to us is because they know much less. They're much more ignorant than we are. If it's not in the corpus, right. they know it. Um, and so we are not used to that, uh, again, binary uh, on or off for knowledge. And so uh, a lot of people think that the AIs lie to us more than they should do because they like to push the boundaries. And it's like... I like to say that a lot of this noise we've heard about chat GPT or 3 and 3.5, it's sort of lying to you is basically like adults tricking kids, uh, to underage kids to say stupid stuff so they can. Right, post- right, right. So yeah, that's that, a good illustration. You have to work hard to get Bing or to get uh, chat GPT to hallucinate. It's not something that's going to naturally rise in a, in a normal yeah. interaction. Uh, although to, to Brett's point, you know, Microsoft has now put um, strict limits on what you can do with uh, with the GPT in in, um, oh, in Bing that uh, is, for that very that reason, is, right? That is the trend. I looked at the end user license agreement for Google's BARD, and it basically says you can't do anything nasty with this. And that's how they're guarding themselves now. They're putting it in the EULA. But you think that's a temporary solution? Oh yeah, that will get better because they learn more, and and uh, we basically we either have to get better algorithms or bigger machines or better corpora. We don't know which dimension we're going to improve this in, and I'm in the better algorithms category, uh, but they will get much better very quickly. And because uh, they're learning, they they and they, they, they learn. And you can see that too when you use ChatGPT. If you say, if it gives you an erroneous answer, you can just say, "Please check your answer for accuracy." You don't have to tell it what mistake it made. You just ask it to check its answer, and it will. And you can see it learning on the spot, which I think is kind of a, a impressive. You know, I've never seen a machine learn on its own. Um, it's not before. learning at that point, really. It's it's just uh, modifying its history. Learning is a much right. It's a, well, we call it yeah, reinforcement learning, right? You know, because we're reinforcing the correct results. Yeah. I'm seeing learning on a daily basis. So I'm less uh, jaded to that for 20 years. You know, um, just before we get into the quick fire round, which we do before the break, um, you know, you started on this in 2001, which was fairly early in the deep learning um, cycle. Absolutely. And, yes. You know, how, how has how has the practice of deep learning changed over the last 20 years or so? Well, it's gotten a lot better recently, but that's because there's tens of thousands of researchers working on it. I mean, Hinton, and so it's fuzzy who came up with what, but from end of the 90s to 2006, we were basically multiple people were working on getting neural networks going, including myself. And I was the only one, as far as I know, that was using discrete neurons. Um, but Hinton and the others, they basically had it leaked by 2006, and then in 2012, it, it sweeped the world, and now we are, have the LLMs, and which is basically what I've been aiming at since the start, but I am calling mine SSMs because they're small syntax models. And the difference is that they are a million times cheaper to learn and a million times less energy to learn. Uh, but they run equally fast, and we don't know what their capabilities are yet. They uh, are definitely good enough for classification, which is 90% of what you want to do with natural language in the industry. Patent recognition, yeah. 
yes, uh, classification of messages, spam uh, by topic in news feeds, etc. But uh, what ChatGPT and what GPT family is capable is basically completion and dialogue, and those are more complicated API calls that I have not yet licked. So I'm working on it, but uh, it's it might be far away and it may not even be possible. Let's pick this conversation up in the second half. Uh, what we like to do now is we like to get to know you, like to help our audience understand how you got started and how you, how you arrived at thinking about the future. Um, so we typically ask a few questions here for very short answers, uh, just a, a quick series of questions. And... Um, and Brett, why don't you like to do this? You, you like to do this, and so why don't you go yeah. ahead and do it? What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or in books? Uh, Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein. Good, Good choice. choice. Take Good it back. Choice. I take it back. It was actually, it has spacesuit, will travel. Hates have spacesuit, will travel. Very cool. Turns out that that's also the first book that we train our AIs on. Interesting. Well, that, you know, that was also going to be one of the questions, uh, you know, is what was your first exposure to AI? Oh, I was teaching AI to uh, uh, college students in the 1980s. Okay. Um, what technology has most changed humanity to date? The biggest change ever is the basically the invention of reductionism. That's my opinion. That is the biggest invention we ever done it, it beats fire but recently basically having the ability to uh, uh perform epistemic reduction i mean yeah anything since 2006 in, that has done been neural networks is very different and very very important interesting name a a futurist a researcher or entrepreneur that has influenced you personally and why mm. Let's see. William Calvin, professor at uh, professor emeritus at the University of Washington, uh, has written a handful of books about uh, uh, about neural Darwinism, which is basically the idea that in the brain, from millisecond to millisecond, there is a competition between ideas, and we are evolving our thoughts. And my, my systems are based on that. Very interesting. And uh, is there any story that you know of in popular fiction regarding artificial intelligence? that represents the type of future you think it, that you hope for? Absolutely. The first half of the movie, Her. Good. Good. That's a good, uh, good answer. All right, great. Well, that's it for uh, the first half. You're listening to The Futurist. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. And we're back in the Futurists with our guest, Monica Anderson. Monica is a artificial intelligence researcher and has been researching large language models since 2001. But she describes herself as an experimental epistemologist. And I want to dig into that a little bit. So one of the one of the things that epistemology is concerned with is how do we know things? How do we understand things? How does the mind understand the world? Um, and you describe a fundamental cognitive dissonance that arises because our scientific methodology is reductionist. And you posit something that's an alternative to it, holism. Can you define these two terms and help our audience understand what you mean uh, about reductionism and holism? All those terms go back a long ways, um, mm -hmm. and uh, they are tainted by various bad in, uh, bad connotations. Like reductionism is often blamed for bad science, and holism is often blamed for fuzziness and and uh, getting things wrong and, and jumping to conclusions. Well, first of all, the, the definitions for holism and reductionism that we use for a long time are uh, are are weak, and they missed one of 
they, in my opinion, I looked at that in 2005 timeframe, I looked, they are missing something important here. And the thing that they are missing, if you go to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and look at reductionism, there have all kinds of stuff that all is very similar. And it basically, in my view, I said reductionism is the view, is the use of models. And models are scientific models, equations, hypotheses, theories, etc. Even superstitions are models. They're simplifications of reality that allows us to compute on them. Mm-hmm. And and uh, holism is simply the avoidance of such models. How can you get anything done if you're not using models, says the reductionist? And it turns out that it's the other way around. Almost everything we do on a daily basis is not done scientifically. If you're making breakfast, you are not making hypotheses about what the breakfast is like. You're just doing it. So the world breaks down into basically, if you look at all the problem-solving methods in the world, they go into two categories. They go into categories where we use models, and they are basically the scientific, the complicated things. And then they are the things where we don't bother or we don't, we cannot use models. And then we have to solve them directly in the problem domain. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in weather reporting, if you want to see the weather, if you want to know if it rains, you can put the rep- weather report, which gathers scientific information from multiple satellites and other sensors, or you can just open a window and smell if it smells like rain, and that's solving the problem in the problem domain. And everything we do on a daily basis is pretty much done unscientifically, even for scientists. We are just basically doing what worked last time. We are remembering what works, mm-hmm. reusing that, and the only requirements for being able to do that is to have a good pattern matcher that tells you when two situations are the same, we can apply the same solution to the new one, perhaps in modifications. One of the distinctions you make is the distinction between um, complicated problems that can be solved with this model-based approach and complex problems where the model simply will fail because you cannot, the model won't replicate the sheer complexity. So talk to me a little bit about the distinction between complicated problems and complex problems. Yes, complicated problems are basically the kind of stuff we do with science. We we break down the trip to the moon into smaller and smaller parts until we have a component we can fabricate. Um, but that approach didn't work, for instance, with protein folding. It doesn't work with language understanding. It doesn't work with plain go. These uh, require other kinds of solutions and and. Uh, an example of that is that they, for instance, they may contain things that Professor Kenneth Stanley talks about as things that you cannot find by looking for them. You have to basically look at a whole bunch of stuff and make little tiny um, deductions, if you're not deductions, but you make little tiny uh, correlations between them. Basically, intelligence is largely a matter of correlation discovery. And once you find those correlations, you tie them together and they form webs. And these webs, in some sense, have weights. In, in the case of deep learning, they have actual weights. And in my case, they do other things. Um, uh, but the but results from this thing where you basically solve a number of problems, you don't even know if you have to use the solutions. In the top end, you get a solution that actually works in most cases. That's the ease, That's the way the brain works. And that's what we have to make our artificial intelligence also do. Let me see if I've got this, um, you know, as as an illustration, and I'll, you know, I'm trying to come to grips with this. Is, um, you know, we we have the James Webb Space Telescope right now, and it's discovering things like very large galaxies near the uh, the the boundary of, um, you know, the known universe from from the Big Bang that seem to challenge the Big Bang theory itself. So um, going back and revisiting Einstein's theory of relativity and whether the Big Bang is is real um, as sort of the basis of our scientific thinking of how the universe uh, formed is is tougher than using that as the baseline for assumptions. But where does that get us in terms of sort of the path to scientific discovery? I have to disappoint you by saying that I don't think AI is going to be any help in that regard. Well, it will help in analyzing the data. But for instance, getting the James Webb Space Telescope up there was almost entirely a reductionist feat. It was engineering through and through for decades. And um, the results, uh, we have to understand the results, but uh, I have no comment on that. I can't come. It's not my field. Okay. So you're not rejecting uh, this this reductive approach. You're observing that it does work. It solves some problems. It solves certain problem categories. Ah, yes, but, yes. But yes. that there's another category of problem 
where reductionism simply can't solve the problem, where you exactly. have to tackle the whole of it. It's irreducibly complex. Exactly. And I called the, the, I have a video about that called Bizarre Systems, uh, which is basically, it turns out that the remaining hard problems in the world, um, in, this used to include language understanding, cannot be solved with reductionist methods. Um, mm. And uh, what's happening now is basically in the, in the world at the large, I mean, is that science is going to lose its prime position as being the way we tackle the most complicated problems, because we can now un unload them to artificial intelligences and let them solve right. it for us. And that means that we are basically saying, okay, this reductionism stuff, it worked fine for 400 years, but we now are going to fix the problems that we couldn't solve using these hacks. Uh, of science, so to speak. We have to solve them the way we solve all other problems in our daily environment, and, and that's uh, going to be holistically. And there's two ways to do that. We can either write special programs that work holistically, that solve special problems. For instance, we could create something that tries to do to understand the stock market in hol using holistic principles. Or we can just build AIs that are general enough that we can uh, basically let them solve the problems as they come along. And either way, we have abdicated our own understanding of the problem. And I think that's a good thing. Now, you mentioned the stock market is one such problem as an example, but what kinds of problems can science currently not solve? Are you talking about things like climate change? Is it simply too complex? And you believe that uh, AI- Big system stuff, yeah. And AI might be able to address that? Right. Yeah, there's there's a lot of domains like that. Uh, like I said, language, uh, how the brain works, uh, drug interactions in the human body, uh, cellular biology, uh, the stock market, the global economy. Um, uh, Immigration movements, yeah. Those are, yeah, those Burning are, patterns, is, they, yeah. they go into political landscape that is very complicated. And in mm -hmm. fact, uh, the, the, the trick of governing a country or a world is, is, uh, is one of these also, is one of these holistic problems. I wish that our politicians were holists. And in some sense, a lot of them are, because if you have a legal education background, you are in the smack in the middle of epistemic reduction, because the point of a jury is to do the epistemic reduction from the complicated crime situation to determining yes or no, is the defendant guilty or not? And, and that's basically, they're doing an epistemic reduction of something very complicated. And we wish that we had AIs that could do that because they could be more uh, impartial than juries. Right. I now, mean, the, you know, the legal this, system right? is, is one of those prime examples of where AI is gonna um, be, be used, obviously, in, in terms of justice. Well, we had a really rich debate about that topic uh, uh, just yeah, a week ago. Yeah, and listen to that. Yeah, with the legal futurist, uh, and uh, and his perspective was probably not. Uh, and and the reasoning is that we have this we place primacy on human judgment. You know, so we we really have we still have respect for judges. Monica, what's your take on that? You know, Brett just articulated a view that I think makes sense. That someday you know you'll have push button justice. You can simply go to uh, AI and and get real justice as opposed to the rough justice we get in the current system. This is uh, going to happen the way everything else happens here. Um, as things get better, we're going to have more and more cries for using them compulsory. For instance, you go to doctor today, uh, the AMA might say the doctor cannot use AI. And a month later, they say, okay, now you can use it. And six months later, they say, now you have to use it. And then they say, if you don't use this, we're going to pull in your license. And mm -hmm. so uh, this kind of, I, I see this kind of progression happen in many domains where we more and more going to insist on AIs because they have a better bedding average than the humans in the same situations. Starting People have been saying that about vehicles though for years. Yes. They've been saying that yes. we'll do this with autonomous vehicles, that someday they'll be so good that you won't be allowed to drive, that um, you know, human drivers will be barred from driving. But we're nowhere near that today. We're nowhere I near that, uh, that. I made that prediction uh, in my book of let me point out that six months ago, we were nowhere near that either. <laughs> and we are a lot closer today. I mean, the stuff is okay. getting better. It's a matter of machine size, corporate size, computation, algorithm power, and uh, uh, and a few other things like that. But it's all going in the same direction. And we all know roughly what the quality requirements are. And we'll get there. It'll just take some time. And the reason people are upset over AI uh, making so many mistakes is that they are given the first opportunity ever to be witnessing when the sausage is being made for the first time. 
Right. And mm. they are shocked at how complicated and how error-prone it is. And come on, uh, have you seen what happens when you're building airplanes from scratch? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, that's a good example because yeah. airplanes have autopilots that do 90% of the flying. That didn't used to be the case, right? Well, it's been, over the decade, it's been the case that the weather is bad, the pilot is not allowed to land himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though. I think people would hesitate to get on a plane that was completely autonomous. I don't think most Well, so, I mean, I think the way it's going to go is I think it's going to go where you will have the autonomy portion of it. Um, you know, the the actually Emirates is talking about this right now. They're going to move to single pilot operation during the flight using artificial intelligence. So what that means is instead of carrying a secondary crew on the flight, one of the pilots will be able to go into the crew sleep time there'll be a single pilot running the flight with the AI. Now, this is not a significant increase in risk because this is actually what happens mostly today. Yeah, but those models right. are getting better. So it's just the takeoff and landing where, you know, you have the highest potential for an issue where you need the two human pilots. So it def definitely will reduce the um, the need for um, having ha having more... Um, flying staff, you know, flight crew on on the aircraft. But I think, and and then once we get comfortable with that, then it's a step to single pilot operations for the entire flight. Right? And I think your main point there is we're already experiencing that. We just don't know. You know, like the well, people, you, we used to have five. Don't we used to have five flight crew. We used to have yeah. five flight crew. We used to have a radio uh, operator. We used to have a navigator. We used to have two pilots and a backup. Right. That was that's how we used to do it years ago. So we've already made, you know, on that on that spectrum, we've already made significant progress. So understood. Let me let me redirect to Monica here for a sec. So Monica, um, this topic has come up several times on our show where we talk about autonomous systems for transportation. And there's a little bit of a debate. Um, some people say that the intelligence will be in the cloud. Um, because we have an unlimited capacity in the cloud. Other people say, nope, that's way too risky because if there's a disconnect uh, in the telecoms network, um, that system has to run on its own. So the intelligence has to be on the car or on, on the airplane. What's your perspective about that? Are we going to be able to run these gigantic language models uh, locally on a, in a car or in an airplane? Or will we not be relying on large language models in the future? Oh, um, first of all, we are not running LLMs in our cars. Uh, for instance, in, in, in Tesla, et cetera, it's special made uh, uh, software that has nothing to do with the LLMs. Yes, they're trained basically on uh, the, the main, the, the, we started with AI in the cars because we needed the vision. Mm -hmm. We need to understand how the vision worked, what was around us. Is that a fire hydrant? Is that a pedestrian? And um, And so that was solved. With neural networks, there's no other way to do that. And that is a holistic solution, if you will, a holistic flavored solution. But then there's all this- In the sense that the cars are learning, that they're being trained. Well, pat pat and they learn the hard way, basically. They learned it how to see, understand vision. Mm -hmm. And starting with that, then they had a second phase, which was reductionist, which was regular programming that took whatever the vision part had and they converted it uh, to, uh, they basically analyzed that and using programs, they decided what the rules of, of, of the uh, of traffic should be, what the, what, how the car should behave. And mm -hmm. over the years, they have moved, removed more and more of that. And now almost everything is one single neural network or multiple neural networks communicating with, with, each, with each other. Doing when you say multiple neural networks, so the Tesla cars are connected and famously they learn from each other, right? This is okay. one of the but powers it, of Tesla is that the- There's still one thing to remember here is that there is a lot, a lot of times when you think about AI doing something for you, what you're looking at is doing something in the inference phase. It is not learning there. Teslas don't learn as you're driving, or they mm -hmm. only learn overnight when they get a new version. And so what happens is that when you're driving your Tesla, you're in, encountering a, a dangerous situation, hitting the brake or whatever, the car records that. And in the evening, when you park at home, it uploads it to the uh, to the cloud, to Tesla, and they can analyze that video and other things like when you push the brake pedal and whatever. Oh, so um, the connectivity is only, it's not critical while you're driving. Right. Most of what yes, you need is I, on board, and then it updates. They, yes, I don't know if they use a, a continuous connection. I know that they connect when you get home. Okay. Uh, yeah. But, but it is true that we're moving into a phase, uh, let's say, post 
large language models. We're moving into a phase where large language models may be a thing of the past. That's what uh, the CEO of uh, OpenAI recently said. Yes, uh, I uh, agree with him for very strange reasons, um, which is that I have models that are much, much smaller myself. Uh, mm -hmm. like, uh, they, like I said, they can learn a million times faster uh, than the models that uh, OpenAI is using. And there are already models that can run on an iPhone. This is kind of amazing. Like this all came yeah. out in the last month or so. Again, there's two different situations. The one situation is that the system is learning, and that requires the cloud and hundreds of computers for months if you're going to make an LLM. For tests, like means that they're running it on the dojo for some amount of time. I don't know how long it takes, but it might take weeks. Then what the thing does is it emits a model, a large language model, which is a significantly smaller chunk. And that smaller chunk you can put in a computer on the cloud, and then that will become your GPT server. And it is what you're talking to when you're analyzing a GPT, a chat GPT interaction. But these things are frozen. So are my own systems. Right, I have right. server in the cloud, which is also frozen. So they basically you learn at the factory, and then you freeze the intelligence, you shrink it, you throw away everything that has to, be to do with learning, and you just keep the model. And that model is what you're serving, either in the cloud or in your iPhone or in your car. Mm -hmm much smaller. And for GPT specifically, for GPT 3.5, it had 120 gigabyte memory model. It's fit in five large GPU cores of 24 gig each. That's still small compared to what it took to learn. Mm. In my you, case, talk, you sent me a note about uh, homeschooled AIs. You yes. sent me an intriguing message about homeschooled AIs. What, what did you mean by that? I mean that uh, our computers are getting stronger. Um, our laptops, our home computers are getting stronger. At some point, they will reach a point where the simplest AI models can be learned at home. And I myself have that because I am working on a much, like I said, my AI models can be taught on much smaller computers. They still require a lot of memory, but I can get started on a laptop. And on, on the cloud, for instance, sorry, in, on my main published website, uh, experimentalepistemology.ai, in chapter nine, I demonstrate basically how, uh, in chapter eight, I demonstrate the assistant can learn English in five minutes on a laptop. Um, and that's that, pretty impressive. That's very impressive. And, uh, and then chapter nine talks about how you can access that in the cloud. It is not as good as the, models. These are small syntax models, but uh, they are good for classification. But if we're if if we're going to be doing agency based AI, so an agent AI that acts on our behalf, it has to only learn a set of behaviors about how we would respond right. in those instances. That is right? a much bigger deal. I don't deal that. I don't do that at this point. I'm basically I'm trying to create a replacement for transformers and large right, language right. models. I Tell don't me what the impact for consumers will be. What would the impact on a regular user of, the, of a computer or a person who's using their smartphone? How will they? How will their experience change? Uh, well, basically, it depends on who you are, what you want to do with your AI. So a lot of people will just be happy with whatever AI is available. And I've been sketching a future in where uh, there are thousands of AIs that have various different biases and capabilities, and they all have subscription prices with them and you go to your iPhone settings and you decide which AI to use this week and you basically unsubscribe to the previous one and subscribe to this one and it will come with right. new set of biases and features. And uh, we're going to start changing those on a regular basis because there's going to be so many of them. You know, I have to point out that right, right now, like apps, the, right? the business model for generative AI seems to be take the money and run because they're charging you $200 up front for a year's access. And it's quite clear the business, the, the logic behind that decision, that pricing model is they know darn well in a year, there'll be a much yeah. better AI from somebody else. And they're like, let's grab the money now and, right. <laughs> and sell you a year of service. You won't be using it a year from now. You'll be using something else. Uh, this is what I'm observing is there's just been a proliferation of new uh, variant AIs. And now with, uh, you know, with uh, um, Llama leaking out into the public domain, you have this crazy frenzy of open source activity that's happening such that it's almost impossible to keep up with the new announcements that are coming out. Give us a little forecast. Like, what can we expect by 2024, just a year into the future? What will this landscape look like? Oh, it's hard to tell because it all depends on how popular my stuff gets. And it's not popular yet. Uh, and it doesn't quite work the way I want it yet. But yes, uh, the uh, if if things go according to plan, and it doesn't have to involve me, by the way, there's other people who are working on similar stuff. But we can see 
AI systems that can learn much more effectively than what uh, current uh, transformers can. And I have a serious theory about how that is possible. And it could be interesting to touch upon that if you have a few minutes. Yes, hit us. This is the part of the show where you should get expanded. Let's get, yeah, let's get out there. So this is this is controversial, and a lot of that is conjecture on my part. So take this with a grain of salt. But what happened in AI was that uh, basically uh, in, in 2006 and onward, we got these systems that understood vision. Um, handwritten recognition of digits was what we started with. And it went all the way up to these AI art systems that can manipulate stuff uh, at will. But... Um, in the beginning, uh, we, so we started with vision, or rather Hinton and friends started with vision. And uh, that was what was uh, vision-derived technology, was basically what won in 2012. Then they wanted to get into text. And as it happens, they had something already. They had word to vec which was this idea that you could create a semantic space of uh, uh, word vectors, and you could say basically, king minus man plus woman equals queen. And you could do this kind of arithmetic in this semantic space. And everybody thought it was really cool. And so what they did was they used these word vectors to convert text to images. So all the deep learning that deals with text starting uh, uh, after 2012 or so is basically doing it by converting the text to an image and then processing that. And this conversion from text to image, they felt it was necessary because they wanted the semantics. So deep learning and transformers, they get the majority of their semantics from the word to vec. So they start with the semantics. Now, if you ask yourself, if you wanted to analyze language, if you wanted to learn language, what should you learn first, syntax or semantics? Huh? And it turned out deep learning learned the semantics first. They learn it before they even start learning syntax. And because they're doing it that way, they have to schlep the information about semantics around throughout the learning of syntax. And this is why they need GPUs, because it became so expensive. They turned a one-dimensional problem into a two-dimensional problem, and it became prohibitively expensive. And that's why they had to mm. use GPUs. And that's oh, so why this is why you're focused on syntax. Right. You start with syntax, you can parse it at a millionth of the cost, at the millionth of the energy. And the resulting small syntax model that you get is still powerful enough to do classification, and it may be good enough to do dialogue. We don't know. What will it take to learn? What will it take to prove that? Um, I would need uh, a much larger machine. At the moment, I'm doing all my research on, that, on an ICANN 128 uh, gigabyte Macintosh from 2013. Mm -hmm. So I've been working for nine years on a a pretty puny computer to do this. And I was forced to basically learn how to do it with little resources. Wow. Um, but if you wanted to learn a raw, enough English to compete with ChatGPT, um, I would have to basically run the experiment and the experiment itself requires a machine that costs $70,000. And mm. I don't have the kind of funding, so I can't do this. But I would love to have somebody uh, uh, get me access to a machine or give me a machine um, with four terabytes of RAM and 128 cores. Monica, you need a rich benefactor. That's what I you need. need. A rich benefactor. No, I need I'm a mildly rich benefactor because I don't need more than that $70,000 to prove my point. A patron. But, but your forecast is that we'll be able to run these, run the syntax models with 1 million times less power consumption. Uh, what kind of microprocessors will you need? Will, will you still require a bank of NVIDIA GPUs or are you saying that oh. that is currently no. required because they're dragging along. So what's the, the what's data. the configuration of the $70,000 machine? It's uh, 128 cores, uh, 250, sorry, uh, 256 threads, four terabytes of RAM. It's a two mount rack server from uh, Supermicro. Okay. Oh. Right on. Well, any other forecasts for our audience that you'd like to share? Like, What's, what, what's AI going to be like in 2050? Is it going to be her? 2015. No, uh, 2050, 5-0. Sorry, sorry, I missed her. 2050, oh, we have, no we have no way of saying what the AI is going to look like in 2030. Sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. I thought I'd ask. <laughs> no, I, I think that, uh, so the model of AI that I like to see going into the future is basically the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer. Anybody right. not familiar yes, with Young Neil Stevenson. Yeah. yeah, New Stevenson. So basically, uh, I, I imagine basically AI being in your iPhone or in your yeah. iPad, 
whatever. And you uh, you put your AirPods in and you talk to it all day and it talks back and makes sense. And in April, it says, hey, I filed your taxes um, and, and so on. So it does everything. Yeah. And it does a lot of the stuff that we uh, do on a daily basis. Uh, uh, it will do it for us. And it will basically have knowledge, which I call a US, uh, a, a US useful uh, consensus reality corpus, which is basically everything a US citizen needs to know to be productive in society. And we should have AIs that know all of that stuff and the cheapest implementation to help the bottom uh, people at the bottom of the uh, social ladder that have little skills, et cetera, may not even speak English is to provide a phone number for them to call and they can talk to their personal AI at any length, any time of day for advice, education and friendship. Okay, let me posit an alternative view there, though. That sounds like you're suggesting we're going to foster a dangerous dependency on technology where people won't have agency to solve problems on their own. We'll grow so used to relying on this uh, AI on demand or this personal assistant. But isn't that the case already today? You have a cell phone. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, how would you order a taxi without an app today? I would be holding You back. can stand on the street and do that, but, you know... What a I mean, statement. Right? Like, <laughs> we already have, have the dependency. We're already yeah, there. Yeah. The nightmare scenario is already there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's going to be that. Everybody has an AI in their phone, and some people pay more for theirs, and therefore it has more capabilities. And it could be that your boss will require that you have a good AI, because otherwise, why would they hire you? Wow. Well, Monica, it Absolutely. has been a great pleasure having you on the show. Uh, we've enjoyed your perspectives. It's always a refreshing conversation. Thanks for joining us on The Futurist this week. Where can people find your work? Give us the URLs where they can find your writing and the, the Zerioth principle and so forth. Certainly. My mind publishing site is experimental-epistemology.ai. And I also have a substack called Zerioth Principles of AI and a, a meetup group and a YouTube channel with the same name. Great. Well, thank you for joining us this week. It's always fun to catch up with you. Brett, it's good to see you back in the, in the saddle. Um, folks, thanks very much for listening to the show. Uh, Brett and I enjoy this tremendously and we're getting great feedback from people. I want to give a thanks to uh, Kevin Hirschen, who very patiently goes through this and cleans up our audio and adds incredible music to it makes our show much, much better, much easier to listen to. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you to Elizabeth Severance and all of the crew at Provoke Media that make the show possible. Uh, we will be um, back next week with another futurist, another person who's thinking hard about the future. And until then, we will see you in, in the future. future. Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.